Hello everyone, bonjour tout le monde and welcome to Concordia University's fourth space. Thanks so much for joining us for today's conversation. The future of communication with chat GPT, promises and perils. We do have quite a large panel of people gathered here today eager to have this conversation and engage with you all. So I will be passing the floor to them momentarily. But first, just to help situate you, we are streaming to YouTube live from fourth space, which is located on unceded indigenous lands here in Jage, Montreal. And we'd like to extend our gratitude to the Kanyankahaga Nation, who are the caretakers for the lands and waters we're meeting on for their teachings uh, about the earth and our relations. At Fourth Space, we work with our university community to mobilize and exchange knowledge by co-creating daily activities, podcasts, workshops, and conversations such as this one. Um, so it really is our pleasure to have collaborated with Stephanie Duguay from the Digital Intimacies, Gender, and Sexuality Lab, as well as Fenwick McKelvey from the Applied AI Institute to make this conversation possible. Okay, that's it for me. Over to you, Fenwick and Stephanie. Hey, hi everybody. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Stephanie Duguay. I'm an assistant professor in communication studies and the director of the Digital Intimacy, Gender and Sexuality Lab. Uh, we want to start by thanking Fourth Space for hosting us uh, with this wonderful setup and also by thanking Lindsay Rogers, uh, the Knowledge Mobilization Advisor at the Applied AI Institute. Um, the Digital Intimacy, Gender and Sexuality Lab or the DIGS Lab is interested in how digital media and technologies are shaping our intimate relationships, uh, the way that gender identity and sexuality is represented, and just our everyday lives as well. And so that's why we thought it would be great to have a conversation about new technologies like ChatGPT and the way that they are impacting our everyday lives. Um, so I got in touch with Fenwick McKelvey from the Applied AI Institute. And Fenwick, do you want to say just a little bit about what you do? One of the things to say is that what's really great about being at the Applied AI Institute is that we're a new institute at Concordia University, and one that we're really trying to encourage members and accelerate research around artificial intelligence and its many impacts at the university. And so it was really a delight to have a member of the institute, Dr. Stephanie Gay, come forward and talk about a project that we'd like to kind of support. And so this is really one of the you know parts of what the institute sees is convening space and conversations around artificial intelligence. Uh, and with my co-director, Tristan Coltard, we're really here as your kind of advocates and your community around artificial intelligence at the university. If you're interested, please subscribe to our newsletter for events and future activities that are happening and for continuing these conversations. Ultimately, this is something that won't, these discussions with ChatGPT won't end here today, but this is really one of the places we're hoping to coordinate the community around artificial intelligence. So with that, I'll pass it back. Okay, and so we've rounded up five experts whose research is relevant to ChatGPT and technologies like it. Um, and because we want to get the most out of this conversation, uh, what I've asked them to start off by is to introduce themselves and to tell us how ChatGPT relates to their work and also what are uh, sort of a couple of the most pressing issues or perspectives that we should be thinking about in relation to ChatGPT. Um, for everybody who's here um, and joining us online, if you'd like more information about each person on the panel, the event page does have a link to their bios um, and their profiles, and so I encourage you to check them out. But now, in your own words, um, if we can st start with Anne-Louise Davidson, would you please introduce yourself and tell us about your work? Um, my name is Anne-Louise Davidson. I'm a professor in the Department of Education in Educational Technology, and I am the director of the Innovation Lab, um, associate director of the Milieu Institute for Arts, Culture, and Technology, and I hold a research chair in maker culture. Um, the reason why I'm here today is because 14 years ago, when I came to Concordia, I gave a talk to everybody uh, in my department and said, I am interested in how we will learn to live, work, play, and learn with digital technologies. And today I'm going to tell you, I'm interested in knowing how we will learn to live, work, play, and learn forward with AI, how we will learn to split our work with AI, um, how we will learn to um, conduct our research with AI uh, and, and do our everyday work, socialize and play as well with AI, so. Thank you. Uh, my name is Nelson Philippe Costa. I'm a PhD student at the Compu Computational Linguistics Lab at Concordia. And for the past year, I've been working on natural language processing, uh, natural language processing. And I've been working with large language models such as BERT, which even though it's not GPT, is very closely related to GPT and follows the same idea as GPT. So hopefully 
I'll be able to clear a few ideas about how large language models work. Thank you, Nelson. So my name is Ria Datta. I am a master's student uh, doing interdisciplinary research in software engineering. So I'm part of the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Lab and the Data-Driven Analysis of Software Lab. Um, my research is around uh, diversity awareness in software engineering and um, how like technology impacts society. So, so, so today I think I have more questions about ChatGPT than I have answers, but I'm, I'm very interested. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to this discussion. Hello. Um, so I am Gita Gyasi. So I am, I did my PhD at Concordia Industrial Engineering. Um, and as of now, I'm an affiliate assistant professor at the Center for Engineering Society. Um, so my research actually like reflects on the and why I'm here and why I'm quite like interested to work here is that to look into the EDI, well, equity, diversity, and inclusion implications of ChatGPT. Hi, I'm uh, Mike Barkham. I'm from the Center for Teaching and Learning, and uh, I work as the educational technologist there. So we've been having a, an ongoing discussion about how chat GPT is going to play out in the classroom. And basically uh, what I'm interested in talking about is how we can move past uh, the initial moral panic that we're kind of seeing in the media and start looking at how we can work with chat GPT and use it in productive and inclusive ways in the classroom um, and not just uh, to, to work past the plagiarism discussion. And while that is an important discussion, uh, that there's, there's a lot more uh, productive use for it beyond uh, that. Thanks, everybody. Um, I think to start us off, one of the things, so I am a social scientist, and I often dabble in the humanities as well, but I definitely get lost when it comes to technical de details. And I've noticed that uh, when it comes to ChatGPT, there's a lot of, there's a big difference now. We're talking a lot about it, but we've had chatbots in the past. Um, so what I'm wondering is, you know, technically from a sort of software point of view, what is different about ChatGPT and how can we understand um, why this difference matters? And uh, I guess I'll ask Nelson to start us off, please. Okay, sure. Um, I'm, let me just say I'm a bit nervous with all the cameras, so sorry if I stutter a bit. Um, so ChatGPT is different from other chatbots because it leverages the power of transformers, something that came about in 2017. Sorry for taking the step back, but ChatGPT came, came off thin air, came out of thin air. So I think it's important to take a, a few steps back just to understand how disruptive ChatGPT is. So 2017 came transformers which completely revolutionized the world of uh, natural language processing, uh, processing. Because before Transformers, for the past 20 years, since 1997, every state-of-the-art model in natural language processing was using the same architecture, LSTMs, long short-term memory uh, networks. And these networks, they were quite impressive because they've, they've been the state-of-the-art architecture for 20 years. Uh, but they are highly sequential, so they are not able to leverage the power of GPUs that we have today, modern hardware we have today, in their training process, which makes training of huge amounts of data super, super slow. So with the advent of transformers, which I think the, what's new about transformers is that they use attention gates, and attention gates, I think, but don't quote me on this, they were first used here in Montreal at Miller. Um, and attention gates allow us to process text in parallel. So instead of going word by word in a sentence to understand the context of the previous, of a word based on the previous words, attention gates allow us to read the entire sentence at once and through a matrix, uh, see to which word in the sentence each word should pay attention to, hence the name attention gates. So transformers came out in 2017 and they were used for machine translation. But when they were presented at a conference, um, they clearly caught a lot of attention. It's no pun intended. Um, I, it was really not intended upon uh, by the viewers. And the year after 2018, two big papers came out, one for GPT and one for BERT. And they are still very relevant today. And in fact, since the uh, Transformers came out, no one used LSTM anymore. Everything has been 
using, everyone has been using either a BERT-based model or a GPT-based model. And BERT and GPT, they are similar but different. So BERT-based models, they're more interested in understanding language, whereas GPT models are more interested in generating language. GPT means a generative pre-training, a pre-trained model. And um, what's good about BERT and GPT? So before, I don't want to, let me know if I'm going too overboard on time. I, th- I think we're okay for now. Okay. Yeah. I can get carried away easily. <laughs> so before, when we wanted to train a natural language processing model, whether it, if it was for machine translation task, for sentimental analysis task, we'd train it from scratch on a specific data set to that task. So we'd create a network and we would train it on a data set from scratch. But uh, data sets in natural language processing, they need to be previously annotated by linguists. So if you're doing sentiment analysis, a data set would be for each sentence, a linguist would read the sentence and tag it as happy or sad. So, and then, and then the model would read the sentence, see the associated tag, uh, tag and slowly start to understand what uh, kind of sentences are associated with happiness, what kind of sentences are associated with sadness. Probably, problem is, if you want to generate lots of data, we need to have human people generating this data, annotating it, which is very expensive and time-consuming. So BERT and uh, GPT completely overcome this problem by uh, pre-training their models on unlabeled data. What does that mean? So they scrape the entire internet that is read at Wikipedia, all the text that is not labeled, and they try to use the, the sentences as they are as the input for the training models. Uh, BERT, for example, it takes all the sentences that it collected from the internet, and the internet is huge, so it's dealing with billions of, and billions of data, and for each sentence, it's gonna mask a few of the words in the sentence. So if I say, I went to the groceries to buy bananas, so the input would be, I went to blank space to buy bananas. It will feed this sentence with the mask token to, the, uh, to, to BERT, and BERT will try to figure out what's the missing word. So by doing this over all the internet, it is able to understand the language, whether it's English or whatever language it is trained on. BERT is trained in English, for instance. Camembert is trained in French. They always do these puns when they come up with names for these models. Mm. Um, so BERT works this way, and because it's trying to get the word that's masked within the sentence by looking at all the sentence, it's more used for understanding tasks. GPT, on the other, way, the, the other hand, it also uses the whole internet as training, and its goal is not to guess the word in the end of, in the, in between the sentence, but the next word is going to come out. So if I say, again, I went to the groceries to buy bananas, uh, uh, GPT will try to guess bananas. By, yeah, the input will be, I went to the grocery to buy blank space, and GPT will try to guess the word bananas. So GPT is very used to generate text, and GPT and BERT came out in 2018. I'll get to chat GPT at one eventually. So this came out in 2018. Then 2019, the same people that came up with GPT came up with GPT-2, OpenAI. And at the same time, there was Roberta replacing BERT, and GPT-2, they, they came up with an idea. So if we make our model large enough, uh, sorry, I forgot to mention something. Both BERT and, uh, and GPT, once they are pre-trained on the whole internet, they need to be fine-tuned to a task specific because at this point, they're not particularly good at anything. They just understand the language. So if you want them to go, let's say, sentiment analysis again, once we have this whole model trained, and this is a huge model. We just added one layer at the end of the model, and we only train this layer with a task-specific data set. For example, sentiment analysis. We just have to train one layer for the whole model to do sentiment analysis. So when GPT-2 came, they said, okay, but we still need specific data sets for specific tasks. What if we just make our model super, super big and train it even on more data? Will it be able to, without being fine-tuned to a, task speci- to a specific task, will it be able to do that task? So GPT-2 went from 100 million parameters from GPT-1 to like 7 billion parameters, if I'm not mistaken. And um, the input now is 
they train to the internet, but they don't do the fine tuning anymore. All they do is do is ask GPT, hey, based on your pre-training, I want you to get to do sentiment analysis on this sentence. And because GPT-2 now is trained on 7 billion parameters, he has enough understanding of the language to comprehend what is being asked to do and to answer. But when GPT-2 to came, it wasn't able to beat the scores that GPT-1 uh, obtained, but he was able to get good enough scores to, for the people at OpenAI to see that this is the way to go. So the year after 19, they came up with GPT-3, same, same idea. They just increased the model from 7 billion to 100 something billion parameters, which is huge. It took a huge uh, amount of energy to train this model. Uh, there were environmental impacts related to it. And it took a lot of time, but they came up with a model that anyone now can download and use. Problem is, as you can guess, if you use the whole internet as your training base, there's going to be uh, a lot of bias, a lot of problems, mm -hmm. because the internet is not really the best place to learn, specifically Reddit. So this was 2020, GPT-3. So year after, there came Instruct GPT. They are always building up on what comes before. And Instruct GPT still uses GPT-3, but thing, they add the human feedback loop at the end. Uh, what is the human feedback loop? So they train GPT-3 and then they ask, ask him to output a specific answer to a question. For example, explain to me, um, explain to me how something works. And they ask him to come up with five prompts. So GPT-3 will come out with five different answers to this question. And then a human person is going to look at them and rank them according to how accurate they are, how factual they are, and how um, not biased, for, I'm missing the word, they are. And based on this, they retrain GPT now using a human feedback loop. And chat GPT is built on InstructGPT, which is just, okay, bigger. I think this, sorry, it yeah. took a, it's a, very good took a long road answer. to get to the point, but I think it's... Yes. Great, thank you. And you raise lots of interesting things for us to visit, right? Like, what does it mean to take so much data from the internet? What does it mean when humans are kind of sprinkled in the system at different points? Um, so there's lots that I think will come up in our subsequent discussion. Um, I think I want to just sort of build on that to pivot to a broader discussion of chat GPT in education. I think a lot of folks probably saw when um, uh, the popularity of chat G GPT started to rise just um, in December and then in January, there were all these sort of articles around about, okay, is this, is this even the end of learning because students will just plunk in some prompts um, and then their essays will be spat out by chat GPT. Um, so I would like to now ask, what does the widespread accessibility of ChatGPT mean for pedagogy and for student learning across both secondary and higher education? And Anne-Louise, if you would start us off with this. Sure, thank you. Um, so I, I, I could talk about this for hours, but I will pinpoint one thing, and it's the nature of the work that we do in school and in higher education that is put into question. It's actually, it's actually you know, potentially telling us, are we doing anything well at all? And this was the crisis that was happening in December, is all of a sudden um, students who were able to go uh, directly on ChatGPT to write an assignment. Can you write uh, you know, a thousand word essay using these three arguments? And some students started getting very, very good at those prompts, but essentially uh, it questions what we actually do uh, in, in higher education education in, in education in general and also in training is it really the thing to say I'm going to narrate my course content and ask students to go and write uh, an essay to give me an answer on a certain topic is that what school is is that what higher education is or are we uh, faced with the idea that we need to start doing something better we need to start, um, you know, not looking at uh, school assignments as if they were Instagram posts, right? So submit the final assignment and I will mark it. No, instead, um, submit your process. Show us what you've done. Uh, can you um, write an argument? When you uh, design content or when you actually, were actually writing an assignment, are you able to uh, curate your arguments? Are you able to uh, see what's wrong from a certain uh, piece of text? 
And very often when we look at writing an assignment, one of the problems is that students don't have a plan for the assignment. They don't have a process. They have a deadline. So we say, here's the assignment, three pages on that topic. And then we wait for assignments to come in. And then we have our marking scheme. We start marking assignments. We don't really look at the process. We don't really you know, explain how an argument is created, how a good product is created, how we move from a draft to something better, how we add uh, various elements of critical thinking, creativity, strategic planning into the assignments. So I think that's the question that's at stake here. And a lot of the reactions that we were getting were, well, what's our role now? Well, our role is great. And I think that when the tools are out, we, st we have to start looking at what we can do better. And it calls to the question, if everything is available everywhere, um, then are people going to stop learning? Absolutely not. People are gonna have to learn even better because if everything is available, then that means that people have to start enacting knowledge into something new. Um, you know, think about uh, innovation, for example. It's you need people who are able to uh, to, to to manage the process, um, to understand uncertainty, to have a uh, you know several milestones, to uh, to understand things much more further than just coming up with something creative and say, hey, I had an idea and I wrote it. There is much more to it. So I think this is just the beginning of the discussion. Yeah. I'm going to close it there, but we could talk about this for a very long time. And uh, the Instagram effect is something that I think is really important to just dismantle. The final posting of the assignment is definitely not enough to understand what has been learned through the assignment. Mm. So it's more about the process. Mike, how does that relate to what you're doing at the CTL? Sure. So yeah, I'd like to pick up the part about critical thinking. And this is where, so uh, we were developing some guidelines at the CTL and uh, where we started was the, well, this, the importance of critical thinking in this process that what happens if that's cut out. And, uh, Concordia has a great resource on critical thinking. And one of the key points that it gets to is, is well, this is a lifelong skill. We're talking about being able to relate and understand and to learn about and respect others the critical thinking is a skill that's just beyond, um, uh, did I get an A on the assignment? Well, there, I'm a great critical thinker. Uh, and so getting away from that and looking at it, well, wow, actually, like serious things like anxiety can be tied to just having false beliefs or having incorrect ways of going about figuring out problems or understanding them or going back to like what Anne Louise was saying, the process. And so instead of just saying, don't do this, well, let's focus on what it is that we should be doing and what does that process look like? And so I think the key point is, is that in following up, it's amazing hearing the history of the technology and the development involved. But the something that is really important to keep in mind is that it's still a human in the seat at the end of the day working with the output or, or the input. And the quality of that input would affect what is in the output and not just saying, oh, okay, I have this output, but geez, what's missing from that output or what perspective is being shown in that output or what assumptions are in it? Or maybe more importantly, whose assumptions or whose perspectives are not present in that output? And so in that way, I think there are a lot of unique ways that in the classroom, there can be discussions about uh, where students can insert their expertise and their knowledge and their perspectives. Uh, you know, I think, for example, like maybe in a literature class where there's a close reading, maybe they did a close reading of, uh, I don't know, a passage in a short story. I'd like to think that if at the end of discussing that for an hour, that if you ask chat GPT, to provide a summary of it that the students could in fact see where their expertise and where the discussion that they had together shows that actually they they're they're the ones with the knowledge in this and like maybe there are some cool possibilities with chat gpt and maybe it does point out something that they miss but then it would be on them as a group to go and discuss that again after so uh key point being is that there should be opportunities for students to bring in their perspectives and for them to also not just bring them in, but understand where they're valuable and what they can do with them and how they can build upon those perspectives. 
I think just to pick up on uh, both of these points, uh, as I was creating my winter semester syllabus, I saw everybody on Twitter uh, kind of integrating these chat GPT exercises, kind of what, like what you've described, right? Try to uh, input something based on your course lesson and then have the students pick apart, uh, pick, pick apart what chat GPT is not getting. Uh, and so I guess my question is, is that an effective assignment, uh, you know, are we able to use this as a tool and teach students how to use it just like students had to learn how to use search engines or Wikipedia or whatnot? Um, so is that is that useful? And is But on the other hand, as ChatGPT gets better uh, at producing responses that are very coherent and maybe even well-referenced one, one day, um, how will, will this sort of assignment stand the test of time? It's a million dollar question, uh, and, and really it matter, what matters is um, what's the objective of, of the course or what's the objective of the program? Where are we going with this? Um, is it effective? Well, in which context? And I think one of the questions will be, um, you know, how do you integrate, for example, the creation of prompts inside courses? What space is that going to take? And it takes time to learn to prompt the system efficiently. I've seen artists work with Midjourney in a way that is out of this world, that they generate uh, pictures in a way that I would have never thought about it. And it's all about how they narrate um, what they want and the breadth of words that they're using uh, and also what they're actually telling the system to do once they have the draft and how they curate the actual artwork and the aim that they have in this. So is it an effective way to create art? I'm sure that some artists are going to say absolutely not. Others are going to say it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, so in a classroom, it, you know, what's an effective assignment? Uh, the real question is, what is what is this course for? What is the program? What are we training students? Is it for professional practice or is it for epistemology or is it for methodology? Or is it uh, there's an ontology somewhere written into, I don't know, becoming a sociologist, for example, or you know, becoming an instructional designer or becoming a linguist or becoming a, an engineer or becoming wh whoever you want to become. What's in that practice? What's in that framework, uh, uh, frame of thinking? And, I, and, and one of the one of the real issues here is how will we evaluate these assignments? Because the traditional criteria might have to be completely rewritten in, mm. in that perspective and, and not rewritten by surprise at the end, rewritten by design in terms of what are we preparing students for exactly to become better citizens that think like sociologists or to, you know, to prepare better workers for a particular market. Uh, and in that case, what does that market expect, or what are what is expected? For example, to to, to be a I don't know an ethical uh, critical thinker who is also a sociologist in 2025 uh, when our students are out uh, after their degree. So, I, I, you know, there there's a lot of variations on the scale, and and it's not black and white at all. There's going to be a lot of shades of gray evaluation in there that we're going to have to figure out as we go, but step by step and, and also thinking about what students can actually do with this. And it took people by surprise, but it's not magical technology. Mm -hmm. um, it's old technology that all of a sudden is becoming democratic and it's there and it's available. So there's no way to protect uh, our old systems. And that's what is facing evaluation right now. Are we going to, you know, detain students into dungeons inside the university so that they can write their assignments only on certain uh, conditions? Or are we going to say, you know, the tools are there and they will be there in your life as well and might as well learn to work with them properly. But it also took up by surprise because we were not playing with this democratized AI at all. And, you know, ChatGPT is one thing, but a lot of other systems are emerging, which is going to create a lot of other uh, kerfuffles, I'm sure, in education. Um, one of the things I was going to say is that um, you mentioned mid-journey, and I think part of the implication here is just a reminder that so much of our worries right now are around text generation. And all last fall, when I was working on a course at the communications department, we had a, you know, a, a class on critical AI studies. We were discussing mid-journey, stable diffusion, DALI, which are the text image generation. So one part I just wanted to flag then, Louise mentioned for the wider audience is there's also conversations happening here around text image generation. And so these concerns about ChatGPT not only are affecting writers, but also creative professionals across the board, those photographers, um, other, to other musicians. And so I think this is kind of a you know part, part of the wider conversation with these channels and how it can be used in the classroom. And with that, I'll you know, pass yeah. it back. Well, I had one last question on the education side. So what I'm hearing is that a sort of abstinence-only model probably won't work. 
um, as it doesn't work in so many other areas of life. Um, and so uh, I guess I was just wondering on the student side, kind of like student conversations about these technologies. I don't know, Ria and Nelson, have you heard anything from your, your cohorts uh, in terms of the way that students are starting to approach these tools? So um, it has been very interesting on the student side, I would say, because as you've been seeing the news, I've been, you've been seeing tweets, um, students have been using it a lot. And that's to say it is, I, I think it just attests to that it is a really great tool and it is a great resource. Um, however, I think, I think a lot of people do have in mind that everything that it produce, like, produces, like the text that it produces is not necessarily, um, it's not, uh, it's not um, reliable. So, so like, like you said, Anne Louise, it is, it, it is great tool to be used while keeping in mind that it is just that it is just a tool that, that still, it is not at to the point that it can replace, uh, doing your assignment, just using ChatGPT. but, um, it has been very useful, uh, all around the lab, all students I've talked to, um, they have been using it. And now that ChatGPT just came out with their um, premium version. Uh, everyone that has currently been using it is uh, that I know is is ready to pay. It's ready to pay the price because of how useful it is. Not just we've, we've been talking about text generation, but um, just for code. Like if, um, like you said, it depends on the it depends on your goal. So for a lot of researchers, the goal is not the code itself, but what the code outputs. And ChatGPT helps a lot in terms of correcting your code or helping you like make your code better. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, it has been, it has been a very useful tool. And definitely there's a, there also has been a lot of questions around how it can be used. Um, as a graduate student who has to write in engineering, um, I can say like, um, it's, um, in engineering, we're not we're not very um, well um, trained in writing aspects, um, and I think um, for a lot of people, especially people who are not native speakers, uh, it helps a lot with uh, correcting your writing or or helping you you know aiding your writing. So so I think uh, I have a lot of questions for university or university regulations around what it means to use it, how can we use it, because um, it's definitely a great resource, and I would, I would want to know how I, I can incorporate this resource within my work. Well, uh, following up, um, I haven't seen students use it because I work in my little bubble of research uh, with research students who don't really take courses anymore, but I could see it being used uh, for the purpose of uh, answering to essays, answering assignments, uh, but as Rio was saying, the thing that I think is really helpful with ChatGPT is for non-native speakers to use it to rephrase their sentences in a way that's more coherent, uh, more clear for the person to read. But I don't think you can use ChatGPT for disruptive innovation because ChatGPT is trained on what already exists. It's not really good at doing something out of the box. So where... While you can use it for answering assignments, again, I, I haven't seen anyone doing that, but in my bubble, you can't really use it to do research because it's not really made for doing something out of what it has already seen. So we still need, as she was, say, as, uh, she was saying, we need to learn it to use it as a tool. The same way as when the internet came up, we had to learn how to use the internet to help us doing our assignments. I remember in school, like using, learning how to use Wikipedia to do my assignments. We need to learn how to use ChatGPT to help us with our work, but we need to be the main driver still of the line of work, of research. Thanks. All right, I'll turn it over to Fenwick for the next batch of questions. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I, want, I want to say it's a really interesting part of this conversation is trying to situate ChatGPT with the evolution of a living institution like a university. And like, what are the ways that this puts pressure on us to think about how a university changes over time? And I think that that's something that, that uh, Anne Louise, I thought was like really striking about your point is, is that the kind of push to deliver education at scale, at scale has made education seem much more automatable. And it's like, what are the values that we're trying to cultivate in education, whether it's inclusion 
or trying to cultivate critical thinking that really become part of what are these core values that we're assessing and thinking about how do we respond to ChatGPT like we responded to Wikipedia or other technologies itself. And I think that it's kind of an interesting you know, reflection point. I'm always struck because the class we taught uh, in the fall, I had the opportunity working with Zef Thibodeau, and we asked what would it look like to stable diffusion? What would it look like for an animal perfectly adapted to the Montreal landscape with two degrees of global warming? And it, it just could picture tigers living in rabbit holes, which didn't, dem which was, I think, an interesting part of like, how do we fit this in and not fit it in the classroom? And I think that that also then parts to and kind of helps me kind of try to think about how do we then try to kind of reconcile ChatGPT and how it fits in these kind of bigger changes and trying to think a bit more about the kind of the implications and the broader social implications of ChatGPT. And I, you know, Gita, we haven't had a chance to hear from you yet. And I think one of the parts that I'd like to hear about is how do we think of or understand ChatGPT as an intersectional issue, one that might draw concerns about labor or potentially the biases in the output. And I thought, you know, we've had a lot of discussion in the classroom, but there's a lot of implications about ChatGPT that, that are coming into the classroom but are broader than that. I was hoping you could begin to help us understand these. So one thing that is, one thing that when we have a technology, we want to talk about it, like in the same way that it provides benefits, it's also like kind of, have disadvantages. So like, for example, like many, well, right now we have the argument that, that for example, like, like many students who are non-native, that they can use ChatGPT as a tool, you know, to help them to do, to do the writing for them, to write an essay, and it can like help them greatly like to close the gap actually like between non-native like students and also native students. In the same way, it kills diversity in languages. So like, as we all know, like for example, you know, language, linguistic perspective, it has a culture, it, it, it has a culture. Like women write differently than men. And also like, and also like when they consider like, for example, from even like Canadians, from the, you know, American perspective, if you even like go from the British perspective, also like go even like to Africa, like Kenyans and how the writing is, like I call it as a writing is a process, how writing is processed, like, like as a culture, like among like people, so it's different. And also like when we are then, we, if we are using like chat GBT to close this gap, it's kind of like does I think that it does, if you look into the harm section, like I'm calling it, like it could actually like, it's different than Grammarly or the others that students use for editing because like it kind of like do the writing for you. So even like if you're after that, edit that, try to incorporate like your own thinking. When it does the writing to, for you, even it does the thinking for you, so it will kill this di diversity. And when it's getting killed, so some may also argue that, okay, then we have a word that is white, so everybody writes the same way, so what is the harm in that? But the thing is kind of like, if it is like we're going like to base on that, so like if we are going like to um, kind of like, for example, everybody will use ChatGPT to do the thinking for them, to do the writing for them. Then one thing that is kind of like when there's no diversity, then you might not feel included in that writing, in that culture of writing. So like these are the implications that again, like we all know the positive sides, but when we are talking about like kind of like, um, if we want to go a bit critical, if we want to talk about like EDI, like special like implications for that, this is one thing that it can kind of like, well, that they kind of stand out. And I think that one other thing that is kind of like not clear with OpenAI is that like this, well, the source of that data, they call it internet, but even like what part of it internet and, you know, and also like, um, and if you, even like we have to, then we have to have, you know, before, you know, before having this conversation that basically like what ChatGPT does, we have to kind of say that where the data comes from and is internet, who is internet? This is also one thing that we have to answer that like, and it's like everybody like also represented in the internet, like who is majority of the internet? So like, for example, like in Wikipedia pages, like if it is like based on Wikipedia pages, there are many, and how it is like mostly there have several studies that kind of like look into the, for example, gender implications and also intersectional implication uh, analysis of Wikipedia, like writing of video text. The thing is kind of like, it is mostly right by, um, anyhow, by, um, native men, well, English, if you look at English Wikipedia or even like other languages, it's mostly like written by men. So it's quite like masculine and even the writing is kind of masculine. And so like, again, like many things in the AI that we also like see, for example, natural language processing right now is based on the masculine culture. And it kind of like, so it's, 
it's not only like from the industry side that is quite, we can kind of say that, okay, it's male dominated, the AI industry male dominated, but also like the thing is that like in the content that's creating is also like quite masculine. And then so like it could leave women really marginalized. So these are the um, discussions that I think that it's, we, we also like need to think that, that also like one, how one other thing that is also like, for example, has been stand out. It was kind of like when chat GPT, um, they wanted to reduce the toxic material. They kind of, it was in the time. Um, and they kind of like said that, that they did a research that they kind of like outsource these to Kenyan workers. Uh, when it was a company called Sama and that, which is in Kenya. And they outsourced that to the Kenyan workers to kind of like do that, to kind of like to distinguish like which is, which is toxic, which is non-toxic. And it's kind of like to kind of like, again, like to kind of, Remove that, you know, toxic material from the jet GPT to give it, to give it actually like to kind of like include even like in the eye with it that. But even like when we are looking into that, I think that one thing that stands out again, like who are these workers? Uh, again, like if it is, anyhow, they kind of, well, besides from the fact that they paid these Kenyan workers two dollars, mm. like per hour, but, but from, even like from that perspective, it's quite important that who are these workers that they decide like which is, what is toxic and what is not. So, for example, if this is quite important that we also like consider that if, for example, there's a picture that you wanted to kind of say that it has sexuality in it and you don't, you know, kind of like you wanted to kind of and one other thing is kind of like, again, like who is deciding that? Who is saying that? Is it really women? Or like even like not only about that, it's about like every kind of like, again, like every kind of text that you kind of want to say, oh, this is toxic, this is sexist, this is like, or like, for example, this text is, you know, racist. Again, writing, the, the important part about the writing is that like it's not objective. It could be sexist, it could be racist, it could have many, you know, it's, it's culture. And one thing is kind of like one thing is quite important is that who decides that? And And that's not something that comes by actually... Um, again, like we should have a diverse workforce, which is lacking in AI. And again, like in summer, it was like mostly men that were deciding it. And also one other thing is kind of like, um, well, these are, these are becoming like super complicated if you want to go through that. And again, like even if you kind of like include a diverse workforce, are they trained enough to kind of like decide that, you know, to kind of like, um, um, how can I say, to kind of, kind of like make ChatGPT a more, uh, for example, inclusive um, platform for, and for students to use. Again, like these are the, again, like um, I, I think that, that one thing that we always like have to consider in the same way that we think that the technology could benefit us, it could also harm us. And, um, and this is quite important that we kind of like take this into consideration while we are using it. And also like, again, that's why I think the, um, value of humans in, in generating knowledge, in generating like, uh, even like in generating text is, is kind of, it has to be there like for a long time. No, I think, I mean, I think that's a fantastic answer. And I think one that like starts to unpack the complexity. And I think part of the, the motivation for the panel, at least for me, is that just trying to encourage that pause and, and push back against the narrative that ChatGPT is just inevitably going to be in our classroom because you're raising, I think, a number of these issues about what does that mean? And I think educators ourselves, like what does it mean to deploy this? One part that I think is really interesting is your, your discussion, uh, you know, about kind of diversity of language too. One thing that's striking is often here that all the answers that ChatGPT gives are generic. And I think that's a good reminder that we think of it as generic. What are the kind of biases we bring into that to think that's generic? What are the types of writing that we accept as acceptable and, and how much there's a kind of bias built into that, like about, you know, speaking in the King's English uh, or these types of ways are really, I think, kind of part of what you're pushing at in us trying to think about what are the consequences for ChatGP, not only in, in what type of content it's generating, but what does that put on the expectation for students about how they should be writing and how they should be evaluated? Exactly. One part that you raised, and I just would also like to give credit to the chat, our Horizon uh, postdoctoral fellow, Sophie Dupin, also raised it, talking about the Kenyan workers. And I think this is something for Rhea wanted to talk about, about who gets included in when we talk about AI innovation. I think that's one part that I find quite interesting is that the data labelers in Kenya, for example, are paid $2 an hour and aren't certainly celebrated like Sam Altman is of OpenAI. And I was just wondering how is part of building better AI systems about talking about who we value in the development design of those systems and what type of labor we think is really important 
about the construction of these AI systems. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about your work or maybe how, you know, if that, that question works. I mean, I was trying to kind of reflect a bit about your own well, I will, I will continue the discussion on what Gita started because that's what you based your question on. And I think these are important questions to ask whenever creating, researching, um, or using any technology um, is who created this technology? Who are the users of this technology? Who are impacted by it? And, and I think just going through the answers of these questions helps evaluate how um, diverse the technology is or how inclusive the technology is going to be. So, so yeah, I think, I think just these like, I mean, I could, I could go in detail about this, but I think, I think just like keeping these, these few things in mind um, helps evaluate um, and question the, the ethics behind or like the, uh, societal implications behind uh, a new technology. So, do you want to? Yeah, thanks, Ria. Yeah. So, um, uh, so yeah, that was a really great point. So, when we are talking about in general any divide that technology like could put between like communities or groups of people, the first thing that we have to think about is uh, like who has access to it, and then like who benefits from it, who profits from it, who controls it. So these are like the four factors that are like quite important, like when we are defining the divide between groups of people, um, well, um, in terms of the introduction of new technology. But one other thing that is quite like, I think that here, like, for example, the study that we did about the AI workforce in Canada and how our research was kind of like in Canada, we looked into the um, AI-related industry and we kind of like compiled analysis like based on Census Canada data in terms of like to see like, for example, who are employed in AI industries, AI-related industries, and in terms of inclusivity and also like intersectionality. So one thing that is quite, again, stand out, um, like for example, if we want, well, um, the data that we had, we kind of like look into the inclusion of women, indigenous population, aging population, and the intersection of the all three. And then so one thing that was like quite standout, of course, not surprisingly, was kind of like, it's quite male-dominated field. Women in the workforce, the employment perspective, like women only stand out like for 30% like um, of the workforce uh, in AI-related industry. And also like one other thing is kind of like, um, an aging population, not surprisingly, they are kind of like in, uh, less than 5% of the whole AI like uh, workforce. And also like for the indigenous population, it's all of the, all of these gaps are like are the lowest. Uh, and um, so like I think for the indigenous population, it was about like 1% only, which is like if you compare like to other industries, quite very, very low. And when we are also like the worst comes from the fact that we were looking to a section so, like, when we're looking into a section, like, for example, indigenous women, um, the thing is that, like, although, for example, like, in the employment of indig indigenous population, uh, the gap, women are as represented as men. So the gap in, in all industries is not as low. But it is that, like, in AI industries, the gap is the highest. So uh, one thing is kind of, like, again, when we're going into the intersectionality, it's becoming, like, quite evident um, especially like with gender and also with the aging publication because like kind of like quite evident that how uh, intersectional groups of people are underrepresented in uh, AI. At least like in, uh, my research is in Canada. So um, one thing at least like in Canada, like we can kind of like say this is they are quite like underrepresented. And when they are underrepresented, one thing that quite stand out is that like then the output could not be as representative as much of these populations as well. So um, yeah, so like, um, for example, one interesting thing that I did like in terms of like, um, I, you know, the territorial acknowledgement that we have, I kind of like asked ChatGPT to create that, you know? And one thing that was like quite, again, like it gives you different, different, you know, um, you can like generate different answers. But the thing is that like one thing that was missing in at least like my first 10 tries, it was something that was like the unceded land. And this is like kind of like, for example, if you acknowledge that we are currently on unceded land, this is one of the most important thing in the territorial acknowledgement. And this was missing in ChatGPT, at least like for the 10 rounds that I put it there. So again, like um, these are like, again, I think that when the workforce, we have to kind of like 
if we want to tackle these biases, one thing would be like to kind of like look into the inclusion of diverse population, but not surprisingly, in the workforce. And also like then we might, again, like it's not necessary because it's super cultural. Even if you're a woman, you could also like abide with a masculine culture, especially like as engineers, because we are kind of like... Um, well, we are kind of like exposed to that. We learn that, we learn that culture. But I think it's kind of like, but this is one way in increasing diversity in the workforce. This is one way that we can kind of like at least make sure that diverse workforce, to some extent, they can also like add the diversity and also like add the inclusion like into the content that ChatGPT uh, can like produce. Yeah. And, and you know, the couple of things I just wanted to highlight, which are really interesting, is one, like what type of, you know, labor quite tangibly are we valuing here? If we, you know, for paying click workers in Kenya $2 an hour to do this really important work of cultural interpretation, like, and we're paying at the same time engineers to do the design and development or the kind of appropriation of the entire internet, you know, that raises these really questions about who gets included in the room and how they get included in the room. And I think, you know, you're speaking about, you know, the kind of biases or who's involved in the industry itself. I think these raise really important questions about how do we see our role as educators in trying to make sure that there is a more diverse workforce and there is a workforce that recognizes these different skills and types of labor and also I think recognize some of the kind of pre-existing, you know, uh, gaps. And I, one of the part that I wanted to raise just in some of these concerns you've raised a few times about digital divides, about who has access and what are these like ability of both access and what are the consequences of that? But what type of data is generated or not existing? I thought it was a great example about Wikipedia. So I think it's really, I think, an important part of trying to try to understand just the consequences of ChatGPT. It's kind of a wider example of like some of the tensions in the AI industry itself and, and ones that certainly we're aware of and trying to address. But I know we're conscious about time, so I just wanted to pass it to my colleague, Dr. DeGay. Um, for maybe one last Great. question. Thanks. I think this has been such um, an enriching conversation because uh, I, a lot of what has been brought up here has uh, pointed towards that chat GPT and technologies like it are deployed within an existing set of concerns, existing circumstances that we have. And so pointing out that this is technology that didn't just appear in December last year, but has been you know, developing over several years, or pointing out that we have been questioning what are we doing in the classroom for a while, right? And is it, are we just asking students to uh, regurgitate information back to us, or are we like assigning uh, important and meaningful assignments that have to do with critical thinking? And then also that there are these longstanding concerns about basically content moderation and who decides what's allowed and what's not allowed. Those are conversations we've been having uh, in relation to social media for a long time, and now we're having it about this sort of content generation and these tools. Um, but the press coverage and the public discourse about ChatGPT seems to make it feel like everything is happening so quickly and that there's something new every single day. And so maybe you were on this sort of, uh, I was on a wild ride last week um, following the news reporting around Bing and the incorporation of uh, the, the sort of chat side of that um, and the way that the chat, uh, when you were using it for search, sometimes also spat out very alarming things. Um, and so on Saturday, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, tweeted a few things in relation to this and just sort of the development of AI tools. And he said, regulation will be critical and will take time to figure out. Although current generation AI tools aren't very scary, I think we are potentially not that far away from potentially scary ones. Um, so I think as uh, I would like to invite you all just sort of uh, to weigh in on how should we think about the fear surrounding developments in AI? What are your thoughts on that? And then more tangibly, what limits or regulations are being put on ChatGPT or should be put on ChatGPT? Where do you see us going next with making this an amenable tool for society, knowing that it's, it doesn't spring out of, out of nowhere? So. Big questions, but what do you think about the fear and what do you think we should do about um, the tool more tangibly in terms of regulation or limits? Very rapidly, and just say that uh, ChatGPT is really the tip of the iceberg. Um, there's so much more in store, and you know the next generations of AI are just going to show us much more about the limits of our humanity and what we're actually doing. Um, the more we discover, the more 
um, things that, you know, that, that are turning up on the market democratically are very scary. But um, there, is, there is much more in store. So I think this is just a question of saying, okay, well, more is coming. And I think there's a broader context, which is we have entered in the fourth industrial revolution. And there is going to be a meshing of more and more of digital, physical, and biological systems that are going to bring a lot of waves of change and disruption in every field. If your field has not been disrupted yet, that's what I tell people, it will be. And don't worry, it will come in waves more and more. I think that the real question about regulation is how do we protect humanity? How do we protect our systems in a way that allows people to react and not create crises all over the place all the time? COVID-19 was a crisis for higher education, and not just higher education, but education in general, the work, uh, you know, cities and so on and so forth. Um, there's no way to control a pandemic. Uh, when it arrives, it arrives. But I think waves of new technologies, and, you know, we're thinking about AI now, but very, you know, I, I sit in a lot of conversations about quantum computing. And if anybody's investing in cryptocurrency, for example, they're all saying fiat money is over. Well, fiat money is over probably, but also cryptocurrency will be over once quantum computing comes along and they won't wait to bring in these waves of change. So I think regulation, real regulation should be around looking at humanity and saying, how do we protect ourselves you know, from our own progress in a way that is not going to be too chaotic? And of course that's... <laughs> I don't want to scare people when I say this, but I think we need to see wider. We need to, to cast a broader net to be able to figure out how to digest these, these advancements and how to be better with them. And things like what, you know, were being said about representation. You know, I'm thinking about just a change from uh, writing your assignments on paper to writing your assignments on a computer. It has changed your academic writing. You know, it's no longer the same thing to be a student today in 2023 as it was in 1990 when I went into university my first year with my typewriter that could automatically type three lines. It would memorize those three lines and I'd have to, you know, backspace to be able to correct something. But writing an assignment looked very different. If you look at it um, as a communication means to write with a pen, to write with a typewriter, and to write with a computer, and now to write with generative AI are different things. And I think it's just a question of allowing the system to really digest what it's advancing. But I don't know how, how possible that is. Well, I'm coming from a very technical side and I'm really happy I came here because a lot of good questions have been raised. And I do think that ChatGPT uh, is uncovering something that we already knew, that the internet is very um, biased. There's a lot of toxic material in the internet. And I think that the problem with ChatGPT, it's not ChatGPT itself, is what we are using to feed ChatGPT. As I said, in order to train these huge models, in order for them to have a human-like um, understanding of language, we had to feed them the entire internet, which I think it's the problem. Like feeding in the entire internet, which is a very to toxic uh, place, is the problem with ChatGPT. So, and if you want to put it in a human perspective, for a human to be able to read the entire internet, it, to, it would take us several lifetimes to do it. So ChatGPT was trained on a huge amount of data uh, to be able to have a, a human-like behavior. And it's still not as good as a human. So I think the next goal is try to make ChatGPT uh, or any models coming forward in machine learning in general, not just natural language processing, but in any field of machine learning, more data efficient. Try to make the models more efficient instead of feeding more data. Because if you can make the models more efficient, then we don't need to use the whole of the internet. Maybe we can use curated parts of the internet that, going back to what was mentioned here and that I hadn't considered before, have a huge diversity of backgrounds of people curating these inputs that are then used for the machine learning models. The problem is uh, with the machine, more, uh, models that, the machine learning models that we have today, they won't be able to attain human uh, level uh, awareness with this small number of data. So we need to make them more efficient so that we don't need to resort to the whole internet for them to, to learn stuff. So I think I'm just gonna build up on both your discussions, but bo both of them are great and they make perfect sense. Um, from the EDI and software engineering perspective, I think what you, what you just said, Nelson, like um, 
it's the diversity of data that has to be fed into ChatGPT that has to be thought about. And also the diversity of people who are feeding this data to ChatGPT and, and the people that this affects, like who are the users and especially who are the non-users of ChatGPT as well. Why are they not using ChatGPT? What are the implications of those? Um, and finally, as a as a student, as a graduate student, I am still very curious to know what the policies of the universities are around the use of ChatGPT and what will be the future with regarding this technology because it is here to stay. So we must learn to live with it. Um, so I must say, like about the fear, I think that like there's a huge hype around this. It's not like it's this. But how we had technologies that they were like much, much more groundbreaking than ChatGPT and we kind of like, um, well, computers, like for example, you know, and we kind of like, anyhow, I think that we kind of like learned to kind of like, well, as simple was live with them. But they, I think that honestly, like one thing that it's about like even in AI, um, one thing that's quite important is kind of like, Right now, for example, there's a huge hype around AI. But before that, like, for example, in 2012, there was a huge hype around nanotechnology. And before that, it was like biotechnology. We always have these hypes. And it's not like these technologies are not as important and they are not as influential. But I think that, like, um, the incorporation of these technologies into our lives, into our societies, oftentimes, like, it's not as fast as the hype says. Uh, and also, like, even seeing the impact is not as fast. And also, like, one other thing that is quite important, even, like, the fear should not be as, it's not, like, as big as it's being said. Anyway, there's, a, there's I think that right now around chat, you do have a lot of, like, hypes. But as you already, like, mentioned, we had ch- chatbots, like, for a long time. And chat GPT, it's, it's different, but, again, like, because it's new, but, again, like, um, but one thing that is kind of like, um, I'm pretty sure the fear around, well, there shouldn't be that much like fear around it. I think that it's a tech that is going to, going like to be helpful. And even like about the regulations, one thing that stand out here, especially like in terms of education, in terms of policy, um, we kind of like have you know, academic integrity. I think that like, and academic integrity is not coming like based on the, um, so, one thing that when students are informed that what they, you know, what, for example, like what kind of like, I guess, shortcomings, like for example, chat activity can have, even like with the use of that, what things like can be like missing out, one thing, I think that like if you inform the students that uh, could play a huge role that actually like, okay, it's not, for example, you know, um, even like, as you also said, like, for example, like if you come like for this of the process that why we are having like these essay writings, why, for example, we want to have like that, you know, critical thinking, you know, it's kind of like the importance of that, that in the end, why we want to achieve. I think that like, honestly, like with the, um, with just like informing the students, we will like, we will take a huge step. And, and of course, like there should be like, more regulations. Um, well, I, if I talk about regulations, I'm talking about the education part. I'm mostly talking about the open AI. In terms of like, although it's named like open AI, it's not super open. So many things still like when we are talking about like open technology, it's not only about the technology being accessible to everybody. It's also about like, for example, open data as um, kind of like open algorithms. It's many things that has to be also like open, has to be like, you know, uh, at least like, even like it should be like, informative to the general audience, not only like to the, you know, tech people, people from the tech side. So again, like, so I think that this is about the openness. I think that if there's regulatory like bodies that they want to kind of like look into open AI and the use of open AI, they kind of like have to talk about like, you know, um, well, anyhow, the regulation should be around the openness of um, this tool and also like, again, like not only only this tool being accessible, but also like openness of the data, openness of um, of the algorithms, openness of the use and also like many things. It's kind of like, and I think that these are the things that's quite important. So yeah, I'm just going to speak uh, from the pedagogical side of things, but uh, the concerns I have, I think, extend both from within and beyond the classroom. And uh, the, the key concern, I think, is what happens when we remove opportunities for inductive and deductive reasoning that 
this is ultimately uh, going to prevent people from being able to understand each other, uh, which is something that we really uh, need at this point. When I, I go back to the late 19th century, when Huxley wrote the investigation of the scientific method, and he explains that, well, it's not like people of science have some magical way of thinking. It's just that it's more refined. They're not as easily satisfied with an answer. And he compares a person of science to having scales that would be uh, analogous to those of a baker. And a common person, as he explains, it'd be more like a butcher. And the whole point was to you know, emphasize the nuance that well, a person of science will continue to, to persist and try to find these answers. I think before chat GPT, I, we can even just look at a Google search at how quickly people uh, can be satisfied with an answer. And I think that's a big concern that I have both in the classroom and outside is uh, how quickly we can be satisfied with an answer. And when we're able to detect that maybe actually that's not the final answer and that there's a lot more to that. Um, so that's uh, the, the key concern for me. I could go on forever about this, but I think it's probably uh, time to. Okay, great. I think that's a great place to pause it or stop it for today, but it's clear that this is just the start of the conversation and there's much more uh, to be said and discussed into the future. So please join me in thanking our panelists. Amazing, thank you. If you have an idea for a podcast, please let us know. You can contact us by email at info.for at concordia.ca or find us on social media at cu4thspace. All social media is managed by Jacqueline Wexler. This episode of the 4th Space podcast is hosted by me, Maximus Delmar, and produced by Anna Vaklavec and Douglas Moffat. Editing by myself, Douglas Moffat, and Chanel Lees Marshall. Additional thanks to Supercontinent for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.